Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. What things had Peshur heard that Jeremiah had prophesied? Well, going back to the chapter before, Jeremiah was given the, the task of, of taking the leaders of Jerusalem out into the valley of the sons of Himnim, which is also known as Gehenna. And there he was to break a flask a pottery flask, and, and it was a sign of the broken flask that Jeremiah was prophesying to the people. And really what the, what, what the implication or what the, what the prophecy meant was that Judah, its king and inhabitants would be discarded like a broken flask in the potter's field. And we looked at that, again, of course, last week. So that's the message. Not a very uh, cheery message, not a very patriotic message, but nonetheless, that was the message that God gave Jeremiah to give to the people. And so Peshur here heard these things, and it says, Then Peshur struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever seen movies where people are in stocks, or maybe you have this image in your mind, but basically it's a wooden frame, and your neck and your hands and your ankles would be secured in these stocks, and you'd be in such an incredibly distorted position, and it'd be painful. And uh, Jeremiah was held in that kind of a, a, a torture device, really, basically, um, for the night. Verse 3, And it happened on the next day that Peshur brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name Peshur, but Magor Misabib. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but you get the idea. Pashur means freedom on every side. And God says, hey, your name's no longer Pashur, but Magur or Magor Misabib, which means terror on every side. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. And they, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with a sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of this city, all its produce, and all its precious things. All the treasures of the kings of Judah I will give into the hand of their enemies who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pashur, all and all who dwell in your house, shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. This is the first time in Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, where Babylon is mentioned by name as the invading army that's going to be destroying Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is... is um, telling Peshur that not only would Peshur go into captivity in Babylon for prophesying lies, but all those people who accepted and heeded his message, his false prophecies, they would also go into captivity as well. You know, when you come to faith in Christ Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you, the counselor, the teacher, you know, the comforter. We all have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. If you have a Bible today, or hopefully you have a Bible, um, we all have God's Word 
available to us. And as a result of that, you and I, we are all responsible to God uh, for what we know and for what we follow. You know, one of the things I think is really lacking in the body of Christ is spiritual discernment. There's a lot of deception. There's a lot of false teaching that are going on, and we need more spiritual discernment within the body of Christ. And you and I, we need to know what we believe because we'll be held accountable for that. So not only, not only those who are prophesying false lies, the false prophets are going to be punished, but those who buy into the false prophecies. And we read about in the last days that the great apostasy, many are going to fall away from the faith. Many are going to be, they're going to be looking to teachers that'll itch, you know, that they'll teach them what they want to hear, basically. You know, they don't want to hear that they're in sin. They don't want to hear that their lifestyle is somehow not, you know, conducive with God's word. And, and so we're entering into that time even now. So anyways, after spending a night in the stocks, and then prophesying against Pashur into it, you know, basically to his face. I mean, this is very bold, right? Well, we get into the next verse. It looks like, to me, we've been invited into Jeremiah's prayer closet. And, and to me, that's just, uh, it's like it's a holy ground where Jeremiah is coming before the Lord. And you and I have been given the gift of being able to be privy to what Jeremiah is saying to the Lord here. In verse 7, and you really get a sense of where Jeremiah's heart is. Look at this, verse 7. O Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I, and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. Basically, he's saying, Lord, you induced me, or you, you tricked me. Because remember in the beginning in Jeremiah chapter 1, the Lord said, I'll deliver you. You know, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be opposed, but I'm going to deliver you. And see, here's Jeremiah is like, okay, Lord, I've followed you. I'm, I'm doing your word. And look what happened. I spent the night in the stocks. I've been mocked all the time. I, your word is being derided by people. You know, here I am being mocked and held in derision daily. Verse 8, he says, for when I, for when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted, violence and thunder. Excuse me. <laughs> he didn't say violence and thunder. <laughs> violence and plunder. Maybe I should put my glasses back on. Because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Verse 9. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. He basically said, okay, that's it. You know what? This is too hard. I'm done. I'm not going to even bring it up anymore. I'm not going to speak. But look what he continues. But his word was in my heart like a, uh, like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. That, that calling that God had placed on Jeremiah's heart and on his life, I mean, he just couldn't walk away from it. He wanted to. He was tempted to many times. But it's just like, I can't. I can't not. Share, um, you know, there are people in the in the New Testament, the the apostles in particular, who we get a glimpse. They had kind of the same feelings or the same the same thoughts. Peter and John, remember when they were before the Sanhedrin and they were warned not to speak in Jesus's name, and he Peter basically boldly says to them, "Hey, we cannot but speak of the things we have seen and what we've heard." You know, people can argue with you about your theology. They can argue you, you know, well, I don't know if the Bible's true. They, but they can't argue with your testimony, what you've seen and what you've heard, what God's done in your life. They can't argue with that. And, and, and that's what Peter, John, Matt, we've seen, we've heard, we've seen the risen Christ. We can't but speak about him. Paul, when he was in Athens, 
And he saw all the junk going, all the false idols that were being worshipped in Athens. It says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. It's like, man, I can't hold back. And of course, then he gave that great speech there in Athens. Paul also in Corinth, it says Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, Woe is unto me if I do not preach the gospel. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, he says, For the love of Christ compels us. So you get kind of this, this people that God's called, you know, and maybe, maybe you've experienced the same thing. You want to walk away from what you've been called to, but you can't. It's like, where would I go? Well, just because you feel compelled in your spirit to share the gospel... It doesn't mean that people are going to feel compelled to listen to what you have to share. In fact, if you've known, if you've experienced it, most likely you will face opposition. Jeremiah felt compelled to share God's Word. As much as he wanted to walk away, it was burning in his heart. He had to share it, but he met with opposition. Verse 10, For I heard many mocking, fear on every side. They're mocking what Jeremiah is saying here. Fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced, then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. They were just waiting for Jeremiah to trip up in either what he said or in his life or whatever. They were watching him. You know, we should, when we're sharing the gospel with people, we're inviting people to accept Christ, we should give them a disclaimer, don't you think? You know, like a, a word of warning. If you're going to make a stand for Christ in this world, you're going to make yourself a target for Christ, a target of the world. You know, remember the cigarette packs? I grew up in the 60s, okay, and, and I remember when the Surgeon General, when they first started putting the warnings on this cigarette packs, you know, the Surgeon General's determined that, you know. And, uh, you know, I... I grew up with that, okay? That's, you know, we, we all have, I'm sure. But um, now you watch those medicine commercials, you know, the drug commercials on TV. Those things crack me up, you know? It's like, here's this medicine that's really, really good, and then they have this disclaimer at the end of the commercial that's like, man, why would anyone want to take that stuff, you know? They should have something like this. It says, uh, accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and living for Him has dangerous, sometimes fatal side effects, which include but are not limited to being marginalized, intimidated, passed over for promotion, mocked, misused, and in some cases even injury and even death have occurred. <laughs> That's what they should do. for the <laughs> But really, you know, we say, hey, come to Christ and things will be rosy. Well, yeah, they... You'll be saved. You're going to heaven, but you're going to have opposition. Jeremiah met with opposition. As much as he wanted to walk away from it, he couldn't. Verse 11. Now, we're still in this prayer closet, right? Verse 11. But the Lord is with me as one mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts... You who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my cause before you. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. I, I love this portion of Scripture because here you see Jeremiah, you know, I mean, he's like, Lord, you tricked me, and they're mocking me, and he's pouring out his complaint to the Lord in his time of quiet time with the Lord. 
And as he's doing, you're seeing a progression in his time with the Lord where he progresses from the point of wanting to walk away from the calling, from there to realizing he is forever committed to the Lord, from there to reflecting on the Lord, and then finally from there to praise and worship. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You know, you go into your prayer closet, something's really got you going, and you're just, you know, you're just pouring out your heart. Maybe you're angry, whatever it is. And as you're reflecting on the Lord and as you're praying, man, the Spirit softens your heart, and pretty soon you're worshiping the Lord, and you walk away and you're like, man, you're just lifted up. But then we get to verse 14. That kind of kind of weird, right? Look at verse 14. Cursed be the day in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father saying, a male child has been born to you. You know, the guy that would hand out cigars. Hey, congratulations. You know, like, cursed be that guy, making him very glad. And let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon because he did not kill me from the womb, that my mother might have been uh, my grave and her womb always enlarged with me. Why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my day should be consumed with shame? Wow. Praise the Lord, you know, and then man, I curse be the day that I was born. It's like what is with this guy, you know, has he got, you know, psychotic or whatever, you know, split personality? What what's going on here? One thing that if you go through the prophecy or you go through the book of Jeremiah, not all of his prophecies are written in chronological order. When we get to the next chapter, chapter 21, it's written about King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah is a prophecy to him. He was the last king of Judah before uh, the overthrow, before they were hauled off into, into captivity. And, and uh, chapter, excuse me, chapter, was that, what did I say? And then chapter 20, okay, so he was the last king. Chapter 22, which is after that, it's a prophecy about uh, kings that were like three kings before him. So we know that chapter 21 is not written in chronological order. And since chapter and verse, um, you know, the numbering in the Bible that you have is not inspired by the word. It's not inspired. The chapter and verse numbers, you know, chapter 20, chapter 20. Um, it was put in by the translators. And so it's not in the original transcripts. And so it's possible that we're reading something from another prophecy. That's possible. I have another theory, however. This is my theory. Jeremiah is in his prayer closet. He's worshiping the Lord. He steps out of the prayer closet. Maybe he's like, man, I'm hungry. I'm going to go to the market and buy some, uh, you know, some falafels or something like that. And uh, he goes, and there he sees Pashur in the marketplace. And, oh, man, there's that guy. You know, and then that, those, those emotions just well up once more. Whatever the trigger was, something triggered Jeremiah. Something caused him so quickly to lose his joy. And the reason why I say that's a theory because that bears witness with my heart and probably yours as well. You know, you go into those times, you're just worshiping the Lord, everything's going great, and then you get out and you're confronted. Something's just in your face that's, you know, someone or something is in your face and now all of a sudden you have to deal with that. And it can rob your joy so quickly. Satan is out to rob you and me of our joy as believers, and we need to be aware of that. So, you know, how are we to be on guard if we're aware of that, about having our joy stolen? Well, first of all, we should be rejoicing in the Lord and praising Him continually, right? Paul wrote in Philippians 
finally in first in chapter three, verse one, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but it but for you it is safe. And then later on in chapter four, verse four, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I'll say rejoice. So having that, you know, that attitude of rejoicing and praising. Uh, but even when you and I are rejoicing or praising, you know, something happens, right? Maybe you're maybe you're on your way to church and you just had, you know, you had some prayer time, you know, maybe you had a fight with your wife before you got, you know, before you left and so now you're in your car and you're praising and you know you're you've gone through those whole progression you've repented and and uh, and now you're worshiping the Lord and then someone cuts you off just as you're getting on the road uh, just getting off the highway and then oh the flesh rises up again and there goes your joy right and you know, pretty soon you're grumbling and complaining um, that never happens to me but uh, <laughs> what do you do then well the Bible says. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Philippians, another verse, verse 8 in chapter 4, Paul says this, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Don't feed your flesh on negative things, but meditate on praiseworthy things. And then Paul says, walk or live your life according to the Spirit, right? In Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So, you know, uh, it's easy to say all these things, but it takes effort, and it takes being purposefully rejoicing and purposefully thinking on good things. Um, I had the opportunity of working on uh, a folding door in our in our hallway, and uh, boy, I tell you, that robbed my joy big time. <laughs> I was really struggling with this. Uh, I'm not even. I'd start. See, it's, or my emotions are already starting to well up. I'm not going to say what I was going to say. <laughs> Praise God for hardware made in other countries <laughs> that doesn't fit and doesn't match, and you got to make it work. Anyways. <laughs> But seriously, I mean, you know what? We deal with that, right? There are things that want to rob us of our joy. And yeah, we fail. I fail. But you know what? It's possible to not let it happen if, we're, if we'll do these things, if we'll be walking in the Spirit and, and meditating on feeding our flesh, or I mean feeding our spirit instead of our flesh. So we get to chapter 21, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur the son of Melchiah and Zephaniah the son of Messiah, the priest saying, Please inquire the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works that the king may go away from us. As I mentioned earlier, chapter 21 is not in chronological order with chapter 20 and chapter 22. This chapter typically or, or actually really belongs towards the end of the book of Jeremiah. Like I said, Zedekiah was the last king of Judah before the complete Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Um, it's interesting when we get to chapter 22, it's a prophesy to King Jehoahaz. And Zedekiah was like three kings after him, so um, it's not in order. So, but we have this guy named Pashur, 
And some people think it's the same person. I don't think it is because it's, he's the son of a different father, basically. Uh, so it's quite possibly it could have been a common name like Joe or something like that. And, and Pashur, um, you know, it might be a different guy. We don't know. But here we have King Zedekiah in chapter 21. He's sending these two guys to Jeremiah. And he's asking Jeremiah to inquire of the Lord on behalf of the nation. I mean, that sounds, you know, really nice and diplomatic and everything. And he says, perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works that the king may go away from us. That sounds really good, right? Problem was, King Zedekiah wanted God's blessings without having to obey God himself. And that's so true with so many people. We want God's blessing. We want God to bless our nation. You know, we get, we get all riled up when terrorists attack our nation and God bless America and stuff. But then right away we turn back to our sinful ways. We, 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 don't, we don't want to obey God, but we want His blessings in our lives. Verse 3, Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls. And I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. Wow, what a response. Not only would God not deliver them, but he says, but I'm going to fight against you myself because of their sinful disobedience. Verse 6, I will strike the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them nor have mercy uh, or have pity or mercy. Verse 8, Now you shall say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life, and the way of death. Isn't that interesting? God says, hey, I'm giving you, even, even at this last stage, this late stage in God's you know, determining of destruction and, and, and how He's going to go up against them, He still gives them an opportunity to repent. That's a, that's a gracious and a merciful God that you and I serve. He's still willing to forgive. He's still willing to turn back His destruction if they would just repent. And God, you know, he has he, he presents that opportunity to everyone. He's done it through we read it throughout the Bible. Back in the garden of Eden, it says and the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall eat of it you shall surely die. He gives Adam and Eve the opportunity, hey, you can live, you can be blessed, you can have everything you want, or you can disobey me and, and you're going to die. Life or death. In Deuteronomy 30, Joshua, I think it's Joshua, is speaking to the people. It might have been Moses, I'm not sure. But uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, it says, I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. 
He gave the, the nation of Israel, I'm going to bless you. And he told them all the blessings that he would give them if you obey me. And here's your choice. Or you can disobey me and then all these cursings are going to be upon you. Even in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 19, If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so God always presents a choice. You have the choice. You can be blessed the way of life, or you can disobey. You can be in sin the, the way of death. Verse 9, He who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live, and his life shall be as a prize to him. For I have set my face against this city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You know, you read this and you kind of got to be a little bit, I mean... Yeah, these guys are they're sinners and they're they're disobedient and you know they're stiff-necked and they're stubborn. But Jeremiah's message, I mean it's it's treasonous basically, right? Hey, surrender to your enemies. I mean, I can see how they would rise up in anger and want to kill him and you know he's a he's a traitor and all that and stuff. And you know, I, I kind of think God's message to the people is that much more severe because of the the the, the amount of their disobedience, the, the the amount of their stubbornness. And so God's like, He's not going to make it easy for them. He's you know, if you want to obey, it's going to cost you. And this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to submit and go in and and go into my you know, uh, submit to my uh, discipline in your life. And God sometimes does that in our lives too. It's not going to be easy to turn back. He'll forgive us. But sometimes repenting requires, it's going to cost something. Verse 11. And concerning the house of Judah, say, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, Execute judgment in the morning, and deliver him who was plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord who say, Who shall come down against us, or who shall enter our dwellings? But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forests, and it shall devour all things around it. Verse Chapter 22, we're going to go into that. Verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, Execute judgment and righteousness, and deliver all the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. What's interesting to me is if, in fact, and I believe it is, chapter 21 is chronically out of place, or chronically, chronologically out of place with chapter 22, God's message in those two chapters is the same. Do justice. You know, don't do these things. And God's message throughout, e- throughout time and eternal to you and I, it hasn't changed. God's message is the same to the king and to the people as it was before. And basically it is, hey, you say you're my people, then do according to my ways. Notice the things that God's telling him to do. 
basically is saying, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, if you really love me, you're going to love people. You're really going to love your fellow man. Now, some people can say, well, you know, it sounds like we're talking about a social gospel, you know, where, where we show our love only by, you know, we just go out and feed the poor and do all these things, excuse me, do all these things and stuff. But what God wants is not a social gospel where we're just going out and feeding the poor and, and taking care of people's, uh, just their physical needs without dealing with the heart. And what God wants is for you and I to have that heart relationship with Him. And out of that love of Him, then we love other people. You can't have one without the other. You, you know, you can do all these social things and have all these programs to feed the poor and, and do all these wonderful things. Um, but if you don't address the heart condition, people are still going to hell because of rejecting Jesus Christ. And you've just made it kind of nice for them while they're on earth, but they're still destined for an eternity separated from Christ. So you, you can't have it without that. Um, and likewise, you can't have a spiritual profession. Oh, I love God. I love the church. I love you know. And, and but yet we don't we don't love other people. We don't minister to people out of that love. You can't have one or the other. It's both together. I think John, in his letter, First John chapter four, sums it up pretty well. He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Going back to Jeremiah 22, verse 4. For if you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of, of David. God's saying, if you repent, if you'll do justice and righteousness, um, I'll avert that judgment and bless you, and there's going to be a perpetual succession of kings on the throne of David. It, it, the, the dynasty of David will, will not end, basically. Verse 5, but if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. For thus says the Lord to the house of the king of Judah, You are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon. Yet I will surely make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. Gilead. You ever heard of the balm of Gilead, that soothing balm, you know, that relief. And Lebanon, the beautiful forest portion of land north of, of Israel there. Um, God says, hey, you are, you're fruitful, you're soothing, you're blessed, you're, you're bountiful on all these things to me. But, but if you refuse my, you know, my, my will and if you turn away from me, I'm going to take that blessing away from you. Verse 7, I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city. And everyone will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord done so to this great city? Then they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. Verse 10, Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. Weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more, nor see his native country. That's a pretty sombering verse. 
it's a pretty sad state of affairs when those who are dead are better off than those who are alive who are facing God's judgment for their rebellion. You know, in the great tribulation that's coming upon mankind for rejecting Jesus Christ, the Bible says that during this great tribulation, it's going to be so miserable that men, men and women, they're going to be calling to the mountains and the rocks and saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne. It's going to be, it even says that there's going to be a point coming during the tribulation where men are going to seek death. They're going to try to commit suicide and death is going to escape them. I mean, that's a pretty horrendous thing. That's a pretty, that's a, that should be sombering to all of us. Um, you know, where, where the dead are, are better off than those who are facing judgment. But that's how God's describing it for the people of Judah as they go into Babylon. Verse 11. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, who went from this place, he shall not return here any more, but he shall die in the place where they have led him captive, and shall see his land no more. Shalom. He's also known as Jehoahaz. He was one of the sons of Josiah. And after the death of, of Josiah, Jehoahaz was appointed by the people to be king of Judah. And he only reigned for three months. He was, dis, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he was deposed by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he was taken into Egypt and he died in Egypt. Verse 13. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work, who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. He's talking about not only the king, but all those who take advantage of, of people, and the one specific example is not paying them what they owe them. You know, you, you want to get things from people, you want to you want to get advantage from people, but you're not willing to to pay them. You're not willing to to follow through with your end. You know, and so uh, basically cheating people. And you see the he's talking about greed and selfishness here. Verse fifteen, and obviously the king was that way. Verse 15, shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me, says the Lord? You know, he's comparing him to his father, Josiah. And Josiah was a good king. Josiah was a godly king. And Josiah... You know, he loved the Lord and he worshiped the Lord. He reinstituted, you know, reforms throughout the land. They found that the scrolls of the word of the Lord in the temple it had been discarded and not read and stuff. And he discovered it and one of the guys brought it to him and he just wept. And his heart was changed. And he went through the land getting rid of idols and all those things. And so he was a, he was a good and a godly king. But his son, Jehoahaz, was evil. And his son did not follow in the footsteps of his father. Verse 17, he's speaking Jehoahaz, right? Yet your eyes and your heart 
are for nothing but covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. And you're nothing like your father. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim. Now we get another king. Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Shall they not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister? Shall they not lament for him, saying, Alas, master, or alas, his glory? He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Jehoiakim, he's also known as Eliakim. He was also the son of Josiah. He was a brother of Jehoahaz, of Shalom. And he reigned for 11 years. When Josiah died, they made Jehoahaz son. The people appointed Jehoahaz to be king. Pharaoh came in, took him. You know, Three months later, he ended up in Egypt, and he died in Egypt. And so Pharaoh took his brother, Jehoiakim. This gets really confusing because their names are very similar. And he made him king instead of Jehoahaz. And he reigned for 11 years. During that time of his reign, Babylon became the world power and, and, and became stronger than Egypt. And uh, uh, after three years, uh, Judah came under the Babylonian rule and they revolted, or this king, Jehoiakim, revolted from Babylonian rule. And the king of Babylon was going to take him and bring him, carry him off to Babylon. And uh, when he left Jerusalem, he either died on the way or he was killed and he was buried as a donkey. Basically, they probably didn't even bury him. They just kind of left him on the side of the road, like roadkill, basically. He was conceited. He was hard-hearted. He was wicked. In later on, when we get later on in, in Jeremiah, we're going to find out that he sought to kill Jeremiah several times. Didn't want to hear what the word of the Lord through Jeremiah was. Verse 20. Go up to Lebanon and cry out, and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry from Abarim, for all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth, that you did not obey my voice. That's kind of a poignant theme too, right? I spoke to you in your prosperity, and yet you didn't obey my voice. The danger of prosperity. Proverbs 30, verse 8. The, the writer of that proverb says, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Lord, just give me what I need. Don't give me too much because I know my heart. My heart, I'm going to forget about you. And, and that hap- you, you can see that with people where, where you know, they get prosperous and their hearts and their walks, you know, as Christians, not always, but sometimes, and they, they start wa- drifting away from the Lord. There's a danger, I should say. I wouldn't say that everybody does that, but there's a danger in that. And that was the danger for this king. And he says, this has been your manner from your youth that you did not obey my voice. 
And you, you get the sense of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, just speaking to this young man, you know, and, and just all through his life speaking to him, saying, you know, follow me, obey me, and turn to me, give your heart to me. And from his youth until adulthood, he's disobeyed. He's not listened to the Lord. And so now these things are coming upon him. Verse 22, The wind shall eat up all your rulers, and your lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness, O inhabitant of Lebanon, making your nest in the cedars. How gracious will you be when pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor? Verse 24, As I live, says the Lord, though though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet of my right hand. Yet I would pluck you off, and I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those who face, whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out, and your mother who bore you, into another country where you were not born." And there you shall die. But to, the hand, but to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. So now we have another king called Coniah here. He's also known as Jeconiah and also Jehoiachin. So we got Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin was the son of Jehoiakim. <laughs> It gets confusing, believe me. I spent a little bit of time trying to get this all straightened out here. Um, Jehoiachin, or Kaniah, we'll just call him Kaniah because that's a little easier. Kaniah was eight years old when he was made king. Very interesting. He only reigned three months. He was carried off to Babylon, and he lived for 37 more years in Babylon. But get this, he was eight years old when he became king, unless, unless there's some goofy thing with the numbers, but I, I don't think so, I don't know. He was eight years old when he, made, when he was made king, and in Second Chronicles 36, he said, it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Wow. Eight-year-old did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's just, it doesn't seem right, does it? Yet God looked at his heart, and maybe he's speaking about his whole life, you know, the 37 years plus... 37, you know, that he lived, whatever, 37 plus 8. Um, but I find that's interesting. Because, you know, we get to this, you know, as kids, you know, um, maybe some of you, it's not really your choice to be here. you you got to come because your parents make you come. And, and you got to listen to me. You don't really want to listen to me, but you got to listen to me. And you're here, and that, that's, that's cool. We love you guys. Um, but, you know... All of us that are older have come to a point in our lives where we, we, we get to the point where we say, you know what, um, I have to make a choice myself whether I'm going to follow the Lord, whether I'm going to be obedient to the Lord, where I'm going to live my life for Jesus or not. We all have to make that choice. And, and us older people, hopefully everyone in this room, has already made that choice. And, and, we've, and we've gone on from there. But, you know, here an eight-year-old is, God's looking at an eight-year-old. And some of you guys are older than eight. And, and, and said, hey, he's evil. So, you know, I just, I don't know, I'm not saying, but I'm saying, you know. <laughs> Anyways, continuing on here. Verse 28. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol? A vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? 
Here again, we have the allusion to the potter and the clay. And the clay here, he's no longer malleable. He's no longer pliable in the hands of the potter. He's no longer useful for any, uh, he's no longer of any useful purpose for the king or for the master, for the potter. And he's broken and basically good for nothing but to be cast out. Uh, that's really bad when God says that about a person. <laughs> you know, they're beyond, you know, they're good for nothing. That, that's pretty far gone when God says that. And he said that about Kaniah. Verse 29, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days. For none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, he's written off as childless. That means there'd be no more in the bloodline, in his bloodline of kings to sit on the throne to rule in Judah. No more sons of David on the throne. Now, you know, if you start reading commentaries, they can really mess with your mind. Uh, Sounds like Jeconiah had some sons, possibly, according to the commentators. Um, they have some speculations. They, they speculate that they died before he died in Babylon. Um, who knows? Nobody was there, right? Um, they think that possibly, and I don't know where they got this, that they were adopted children and they were not natural. Again, where they come up with that, I don't know either. But no matter what, history proves out that there were no more on the throne after Jeconiah. Now, I mentioned Zedekiah was the last king on the throne after Jeconiah. Um, Zedekiah, or Jehoiakim, no, excuse me, Zedekiah was uh, the son of, let me back up here, Jeconiah was the son of Josiah, I got my notes are messed up, Jeconiah was Jehoiakim's Son, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm put it this way. <laughs> uh, okay, Jeconiah. Uh, let's see, Coniah. Hang on a second here. I'll get this straightened out. Yet, okay. Coniah was the son of Jehoiah. Hey, there we go. A Bible. <laughs> wow. How does that work out? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we got Jehoiakim. Okay, we got Josiah. We have Jehoahaz, which was a son of Josiah, and Jehoiakim, who was also a son. So those two guys were brothers. And then we have Jehoiachin, who was the son of Jehoiakim. And then we have the last king, who was Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was another son of Josiah. So he was actually uh, Jeconiah's uncle. All right. Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, when all else fails, read a Bible. It'll help you. So anyways, um, all that to say is that, uh, i go back to where I was here. All that to say, whatever happened, there were no more kings on the throne of Judah as God had prophesied when God said, write this man out as childless. Um, if you go by age, 
Jeconiah would have been the last of the kings of Judah. Now, Zedekiah, I'll just mention him here because it's the end here for that. He reigned 11 years. He was placed on the throne by the king of Babylon, and he later revolted against Babylon. And when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Babylon, he put out Zedekiah's eyes, he gouged out his eyes, and carried him off in chains, and he died in prison. And Gedaliah was made governor of Judah after the captives left Jerusalem. Um, And so he was a governor, he was not a king. So from Jeconiah onward, there were no more kings on the throne of Judah. There was no more in in that bloodline. Uh, to be kings on the throne of Judah. And you can imagine Satan, you know, he's always wanted to thwart the plans of God to redeem mankind. And, and you can imagine Satan's like, whoa, we killed off that bloodline, you know. Um, you know, Satan's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. And he's not omnipresent, you know. He, he's a, he's a, he, was a, he was created as an angel who rebelled against God. So he's not like the equal but opposite of Jesus, uh, he was, he's a creature. He's created like you and I. And, and uh, Satan probably thought at this point he had you know, thwarted God's plans for a Messiah because, hey, there's no more sons of David. There's no more in that bloodline for the Messiah to come from. But you know what's really fascinating? And I have to credit Chuck Missler with this because I would have never came up with this. Um, one day, uh, one time, there was a group of us who went to Israel I think it was 2007. And on our tour, we went to uh, a place in the West Bank, and we met with this, uh, I don't know if he was a rabbi, Fuchs, remember him? Um, I forgot his, what his name was. Pinka, Pinkus Fuchs, that was his name. And I don't, he might have been a rabbi, whatever. Anyways, he was this Orthodox Jewish guy. And he took us in, uh, walked us around in the land there, the, where they were in their uh, their little uh, kibbutz or whatever. And uh, he was pointing out different places, and, and he started talking about the, the territories that the tribes of Israel had received. And he started talking, and he was, and if you ever listen to someone in Israel speak, name some of the names, like I say, Jeconiah, they, they say it like totally different. You're like, so anyways, he's talking about these, 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 these girls and turs and all this stuff, and I'm like, what in the world? Who is he talking about? And then it dawned on me, I forgot how, but all of a sudden it dawned on me, he was talking about Zelophehad, and he pronounced it totally different. And if you know the story in Numbers 27, uh, the daughters of Zelophehad, or Zelophehad, in the time when the tribes of Israel were getting their tribal inheritance, Zelophehad didn't have any sons, and the tribal inheritance was supposed to be passed off to the sons. And so he only had daughters. And so they said, hey, what about us? What's going to happen? And so they went to Moses and said, Moses, actually it would have been to Joshua. Yeah, it would have been to Joshua, I think. They said, well, what are we going to do about this? And uh, they inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, no, if there's no, uh, if there's no sons in that family, and if uh, they marry within the tribe, so they don't go out of the tribe, then they get the inheritance of that tribe. So that, you know, was a thing that happened in Numbers 27. And you go, what does that have to do with anything that we're talking about this morning? Well, here's the deal. Because of that ruling that basically said that the inheritance could pass through the bloodline of the mother, because of that... Jesus can, can claim to be, and accurately so and truthfully so, of a son of David through the bloodline of Mary, his biological mother. 
You see, because the bloodline stopped with Jeconiah, but if you go back in uh, one of the Gospels, I'm not sure if it's, I think it's Luke's Gospel, um, traces Mary's lineage up to David, but not through Solomon. See, all these kings of Judah, they descended from Solomon. And, and then the bloodline was stopped. And so there's no more kings. And so how can Jesus claim to be the son of David? How can he claim that, you know? But through Mary, Mary's bloodline descends through Nathan, another one of David's sons. And so God had a plan and a purpose, and he allowed that, you know, to work out. Now, you and I look at that, you know, maybe you've read that in Numbers 27 and go, okay, here's this passage that just doesn't seem to fit with anything else we're reading, you know. And from our perspective, and I can say from my life, things that happen to me in my life, I will go, why is this occurring in my life? I mean, what's the purpose? It just doesn't seem to fit. And yet God has a plan and a purpose for everything. And God can take even the failings of mankind and he can turn it and use it for his glory. And so here God took this, this incident and, you know, God, all-knowing, all-wise, you know, knows that that's what's going to happen. And so he plans it out. We read this and go, I don't know, see how it fits. And then we get a guy like Chuck Missler, this brainy guy that comes by and says, hey, well, it's because of this that Jesus can claim, you know, and, and uh, that he's from the bloodline of, of the sons of David. Fascinating to me. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 8 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so maybe you've got something going on in your life and that doesn't make sense. Well, I can tell you, God has a plan and a purpose. And God is working and orchestrating all those things. And you may not even see it in your lifetime, but God is working his purpose in history, and he's using you and I as part of that. And we probably will never know some of those things. We may never know until we're in eternity and we see him face to face, and then it's all going to make sense when we see him. Actually, I think, you know, sometimes I think when I go to heaven, I'm going to have all these questions, you know, why did this happen? I got a feeling when I get up there and I see Jesus in his glory, and I see the 24 elders and all the living creatures and the myriads and myriads of, of creation worshiping. I think all those questions, you know, God, why did you allow me to stub my toe that one time? So it's like, who cares? Who cares? My opinion. Anyways, the last thing that I think here that is really cool is how, you know, Scripture is inspired by God. And even the most trivial thing that you read in the Bible is placed there for a reason. Even the most trivial thing is there for a reason. And it's there for you and I to discover. And there is for you and I to dig into God's Word to find the truths behind it. But uh, I hope that that encourages you this morning. I hope that it builds your faith in God's Word and it also strengthens you in your walk with the Lord.